children's church time. As Jesse says, Daddy, Daddy, it's children's church time. Yes, Jesse, I know. It's children's church time. Good morning to all of you. And good morning to those of you who are at home, watching at home, including Chantelle. Hey, sweetheart. Austin's got a bad cough, so she's at home with Austin this morning. Hi to everyone else who's watching and everyone else who faithfully watches online. And uh, good morning to Tina Regeer. You see the comments? She's always watching online. So, Tina, if you're watching this morning, good morning to you too. It's neat that people that can't be here in the room with us get a chance to watch. Who would have thought of that a few years ago? It's neat. We need to pray together, I feel like, as a family, before we read this last church in Revelation. This is heavy, but the Word of God speaks, uh, speaks truth and speaks to the heart, and the heaviest passages are often the most rewarding to read through. But I think for us to process this, I know for me, as I was preparing this this week, your heart needs to be ready to hear what God has to say. So, uh, if you want to join me, just close your eyes and bow your head and quiet your heart for a second. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to do his work this morning. Spirit of God, you are holy, holy, holy. You reveal to us, Holy Spirit, all truth. You lead us. You lead us down the path of righteousness. And Spirit of God, you illuminate scripture to us. You've done that for me, Spirit of God, so many times. And my prayer this morning, just like it has been so many other times, is that you would show me the truth in the scripture. Show me what is for me. Show me what it says. Show me how to live it out. Help me, Lord Jesus, and help me, Spirit of God, not to read it the way I want to. Not to read it the way that's most comfortable for me, but to see right to the depth of my own sin and where I need to reflect this morning, where the repentance inside of me needs to come from, Spirit of God. And then would that trickle out across this church family to each one who considers the same thing. But God, if we read the scripture and we don't take the time to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it and what does it truly say, then this, this won't mean much. So Spirit of God, help each one of us especially me, to be listening to what this means when I go home today. Would you please bless the reading and the teaching of your word this morning? We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The seven churches of Revelation. Who would have thought this would have turned into such a fun series, hey? And uh, strategically, Don did it again, and... Uh, he gives me the church at the beginning that doesn't really love God. He gives me the Thyatiran church that is deep within sin. And then the Laodicean church, which is completely blind to their own sin. And the fact that the relationship with God isn't what they think anymore. Blindness. When I think about blindness, often I think about my beautiful wife at home, because she is surprisingly blind. And I've never been blind. I can see just fine. I can see those of you who fall asleep in church. I can see those of you who are obviously playing on your phone. The Bible app does not require that much clicking. I can see it. 
I'm just kidding. Chantelle, though, if her glasses come off, she wears contact lenses, you know, but if her contacts or her glasses come off, I'm talking, she's not safe to be behind the wheel of a vehicle. She can't, she probably wouldn't be able to tell who's across the room. And she knows it. She's not foolish enough to think that she can hop behind the wheel of a vehicle and just, you know what, give it a try. Why not? Why? Because she's perceptive enough to her own ability and the state of her own vision to know what's within the boundary and outside of the boundary. Most people who are blind seem to have that knowledge. As we get into Revelation, we are going to talk about the Laodicean church. This church was blind. This church couldn't see. But the saddest part of this church, the saddest part, is they thought they could. They thought they could. And what do you think is going to happen to a church that thinks they can see, but turns out they can't at all? Disaster. Disaster. We are going to read a little bit, though, from a story in Luke together this morning. Before we get too far into the Laodicean church. Because I think this story of the blind beggar sets the stage for the Laodicean church. So this is a conversation between Jesus and a blind man. Just listen to it if you want um, as I read some of these verses to you. Or you can turn to Luke 18.35. But this is it. Jesus is going through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to Experience what? I'll give you a hint. His death. The cross. And on his way there, he's going to meet Zacchaeus. And he's going to welcome him into the family of God through forgiveness and repentance. But he knows what he's walking to. And as he walks through the city of Jericho, you imagine that the uproar is large. People are gathering Hundreds of people now are following him. People are probably leaving their businesses, coming out of their homes. Why? Because they want to see what's going to happen. Is Jesus going to heal someone? Is he going to say something? People are following. People are chanting probably the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Anointed One. What could this mean for people? And over along the road, the blind beggar. Can't see. Doesn't know what's going on. And on this day, before this crowd, before Jesus entered the city, just like every other day, completely blind, helpless, begging for any money that someone would offer to him, hopeless, but very aware of his current state. And as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside and he was begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen to those words. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way, they rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. But it didn't stop him. He shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. 
when he came near Jesus, asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to see. Why did he ask for that? Because he's blind and he knows it. He's helpless without external intervention. Do you think he hasn't tried his whole life to see? He can't do it. But the promised king, the one who brings the miracles of God, is walking through town and he's not ashamed to admit that he can't see. It's not embarrassing. He just admits it. I have this incredible weakness and I need a savior. I need intervention. And Jesus does what? He says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus, praising God. And all the people saw it. And they praised God. If he would have sat there along the road and thought to himself, well, you know what? I can see just fine. I can't see much, but it's enough. Jesus would have wandered right past and he would have spent the, le- the rest of his life, the rest of it, sitting in this darkened, blind state. But he doesn't. He admits it right away. He needs help. Do you and I have that same attitude towards the state of our depravity and sin and the holiness of God? And with that... Let's read the Laodicean church. This is Revelation chapter 3. If you have a Bible, or if you have your Bible on your phone, that's fine. We use that too all the time. Make sure you open it up and read along with me. I'm going to have the verses behind me if you can read it. You're always welcome to read along in the Bible as I read along. Um, I'm reading out of my NIV, the Slides behind me are in the ESV, so you can kind of see a little bit of the differences. This is the letter written through John, but by Jesus, to the church in the city of Laodicea. Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. This is verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The words of God to the church in Laodicea. Let's take a look at verse 14 at the beginning of this story. Let's go through this together. Of course, Jesus introduces himself, just like he does in every other letter. Do you notice the three different ways he describes himself in this letter? Not one or two ways, but three different ones. He describes himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and the origin or the source or the ruler of creation, depending on how you read that word. Amen is the conclusion, it's the affirmation of God. The amen, it's the, it's the ending, it's the bookmark. When people all say amen together in church, they're saying, so be it, let it be done. Amen. We affirm. So what is he affirming? What is he affirming of God? Well, maybe it's the testimony that he gives. He is God's witness to the people. He is the one speaking on behalf of God. And we're to listen to the witness. And he is faithful and he's true. That's why you can trust him when he is the affirmation of God. So what he's about to say is trustworthy. What he's about to say is the words of the Father. But does he have the authority to carry it out? I believe he does. Why would he introduce himself as the origin or the source or the authority to rule over God's creation? I'm guilty of it when I come to church sometimes. My relationship with God, my relationship with God is so personal and intimate, like we read in Romans. He's our Abba, he's our Father. And this tells us that he's the ruler of all the universe. It's possible for God to be our closest friend and for him also to be the one who speaks and we are silent in his presence. The ruler of creation. So when he speaks, you listen. He has the authority to do what he wants because he spoke us into being. And what he's about to say to this church is incredibly hard, but there's nothing they can say in response to him. What, are you going to critique him? You're gonna, what, are you going to counsel him? Book of Job? What are you going to say to counsel me? I am God. I know your deeds. You're not hot. You're not cold. This is verse 15 and 16. Because you're lukewarm, because you're not hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The problem with this church is that they're so blind to their current state that they think 
they're rich. They think they're hot. They think that they have this healthy relationship with God. That the current state that they're in is okay, but it's not. And God says he would rather them be hot or be cold. If you read in 2 Peter, it talks about the same idea. That Christians who get deceived by false teachers, it says in that letter, it'd be better off if they didn't know him to begin with than to know him and then to live this entire life where they don't live for him. Get deceived away from him. It would be better for you to have a real relationship with God or to just have none whatsoever. But to have this in-between You claim to know him. You claim to follow him. You prayed a prayer when you were little. You said, I want you, God. I want you to forgive me. And then the rest of your life, just fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. You're just a tree covered in leaves. What's worse is that to those who are saved, you're not it. That's not the purpose of this relationship with God. You don't repent. You're not humble. You're arrogant and proud. And to those who don't believe, you become a hypocrite that just drives them further away because you claim to follow this king, but you don't live for him as master and lord. You can't see yourself. That's why in the next passage... When he says, you say that you are rich. You say that you have acquired wealth. You say you don't need a thing. That's your attitude as a church. But what you don't realize is I'm the one who offers gold. I'm the one who offers real clothes. I'm the one who offers salve for your eyes. You think you are rich and you don't need a thing. Lukewarm church. I was thinking about Adam and Eve and Satan's work in the garden. Because he is the prince of lies, because he is the deceiver of you and me, he's been speaking from the very beginning. And I think what he's trying to distort is our view of ourselves and our view of God. This is what I mean. If he can distort the view of ourselves, then we don't see ourselves for the true sinful state that we're in. We can convince ourselves that we're not as trapped in sin as the Bible says. Overall, I'm pretty good. Overall, I, I'm not, sin's not my master. Overall, I'm actually pretty righteous. Look at the way I live. Look at my deeds. Look at my actions. And especially people in church, we can buy into this lie. This incorrect view of ourselves. Because if you woke up every day and saw yourself for what you truly are, it would break your heart. You would see yourself as blind and pitiful and naked and poor and wretched. And if you could see yourself that way, What do you think your relationship with a holy God would look like? What do you think that your time in prayer would look like if you saw yourself for what you truly were? Not trapped in shame and guilt, that's not what I'm talking about, but broken and sinful. Not just seeing yourself, but now let's go to the second, seeing God. You see, if you don't see God for the true holiness that he has, then again, it breaks down this relationship you're supposed to have with him. Okay, example, Adam and Eve in the garden. 
What does Adam and Eve believe and buy into that Satan whispers to them? God is keeping something from you. God says he's holy and perfect and loving, but he's placed something in the garden that he won't give you. The knowledge of what's good and what's evil. All of a sudden, they begin to doubt that they were made properly. They all of a sudden believe that they're missing something, and they also start to believe that God is withholding something from them. If God was truly loving and holy, if he gave us all things, if he fulfilled all of our needs, we wouldn't need the knowledge of good and evil. But if we're lacking something, and if God's not willing to give that thing that we're lacking, then we reach out and sin and try to take it for ourselves. Do you see yourself for what you truly are? And then do you see God for who he truly is? That blind beggar on the side of the road, he knew the state that he was in. He recognized the power of God. Jesus is going to use specific examples to the Laodicean church. And I don't need to bore you with geological and graphical information on the city of Laodicea. You can read commentaries if you want all of that. But why this made so much sense to them is that there was a hot springs in an area six miles north of them, healing water that they trenched through an aqueduct into their city. And to the south of them was Colossae, the city on the edge of the mountain that had incredible drinking water. Mountain water, right? That's why they don't bottle water in Saskatchewan. They bottle it in BC and they ship it here. Water from the uh, Saskatchewan River bottled in Saskatoon. And no one buys a bottle of it. (laughs) Spit it out of your mouth. This city knew lukewarm water. If you went north, hot water that healed the body. If you went south, cool water that quenched the thirst. But that aqueducted water into Laodicea, if you read in the history books, it talks about this aqueduct was coated in lime because the water was so filled with minerals and six miles it lost its heat as it came down to the city. It was disgusting and lukewarm by the time it got there. They understood disgusting lukewarm water. They were also a rich city. They were a banking city. For example, an earthquake destroyed their city in 60 AD. And Rome offered to help finance the rebuilding of Laodicea. And Laodicea said, No, not necessary. Sounds awful arrogant, doesn't it? They rebuilt their own city because they were that wealthy. They were also a large exporter of wool. Black and wool in particular. Their wool went all across the empire, especially to Rome, the capital. They were a textiles manufacturer. They made clothes. Take a guess. What do you think the other third famous thing from Laodicea was? Take a guess. Riches, clothing, and salve for the eyes. They had a medical school there in Laodicea, where um, the one commentary described it as a powder, a salve for the eyes was produced there and shipped to the other cities where people had illnesses in their eyes and needed treatment. Laodiceans 
could heal the eyes of the blind. They could treat it with their medicine. How pointed then is Jesus' letter to them? You think you have wealth. You can rebuild your city. You're pitiful, poor, and blind. You think you have clothes. You think you ship your clothes around the world. You are naked and should be ashamed of your nakedness and sin. You think you have salve for the eyes? You think people that need healing for their blindness should come to you? They should come to me. Jesus says, if you would come to me, I would show you riches, purified gold by the fire. If you came to me, I would give you white clothes to cover your shame and your nakedness. If you came to me, I would give you salve for the eyes so that you could truly see. But this city and this church was deceived. We are rich. We've acquired much wealth. We don't need a thing. That should haunt you as you read this story. Because how many times have we settled into this state with God where we just stop praying? Where we just stop repenting of our sin? Where we just stop desiring to read his word? Where we just stop desiring to participate in this ministry? In this relationship? In this discipleship? I'm bored of it. I've given enough. I don't really enjoy prayer. I get bored reading the Bible. What are you saying? You're saying, I have enough. I'm okay. I'm fine. A blurred vision of yourself. And what are you also saying? God's not worth pursuing. Pursuing him every day isn't worth it. He's not that grand. He's not that holy. His sacrifice isn't that magnificent. You're saying it with your actions. Luke warm water. One day, you and I will stand before a holy God and he will look us in the eyes, I believe with all my heart. And to some of us, he's going to say, welcome home. And to some of us, he's going to say, my name is Jesus, who are you? And it's going to be you and it's going to be me and we're going to be there. And some of us, are going to have to introduce ourselves to him for the first time. I've talked about this before. That's terrifying, especially for those who have thought their whole lives that they didn't need him. They didn't. And they sat in church, and they did the things, and they're going to have to introduce themselves to him for the first time. I just thought I was fine. I thought I had acquired wealth. I thought I could see. I didn't think I was that shameful and naked. Verse 19 and 20. I love those I discipline. I love those that I call to repentance. I implore you, be zealous and repent. The ESV says. It's not out of his anger towards you that he says, come, repent, turn away from this life of sin and go a different way. It's out of his grand love for you that he calls you to this. That he calls you to this every day. 
His love, when one of my kids, all right, runs into the street and I yell at them to get off the street and they come back to me and say, Dad, if you just loved me, you wouldn't yell. If you just loved me, you'd let me go play in the street. And I would say, son, you don't understand. Because I love you, I will always yell when you run into the street. To you, it may sound like anger. It might sound unfair. Maybe the funnest thing to do is to be in the street. But I have seen beyond what you can see. And that's not the way. It's actually leading to death. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So repent and be zealous about it. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, just open the door and let me in. Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That one day the bride and the groom will feast together when we're with him. And this church planted, what, 20, 30, 40 years earlier through some of Paul's missionary work and the other apostles who were sent and the other people who believe. Jesus isn't encouraging them to live a more active Christian faith, to read their Bible a little more, to pray a little bit more. What is he saying? Let me in. Let me in. I'm knocking. I'm not inside right now. I'm not inside. This wasn't written to the unbelievers. This wasn't written to those outside the church. This is written to those inside the church. I'm not in. Open the door. You want to dine with me? You want this intimacy with me? You want this relationship with me? Open the door. But the door is closed. The door is closed. Why is the door closed to all these Christians who are sitting in the church listening to this letter? Was it because they had an improper view of themselves? and didn't see themselves as that sinful? Was it because they had an improper view of God and didn't see him as that holy? They're not in. I say again, some of you are going to introduce yourselves to God the day that you stand before him. Because you sat here and you smiled and you nodded at me as I read this story to you. You thought, that's great, Darren. Just keep it up. Keep reading. I'm enjoying this. This is great. He's not in. Those words should haunt your soul. You should be quieting yourself right now and just saying, Father in heaven, have I, have I wandered away from you, Lord Jesus? What have I done? Have I not humbled myself and repented of sin? Is there no saving grace inside of my own heart? Have I not been transformed? Am I still a slave to the master of sin? Have I not died to myself? Those who are victorious and those who conquer will sit with him on his throne. Look at verse 21 and 22. He said, 
just as I was victorious, just as I sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus has already done it. And those who are victorious will join him in his majesty, in his authority, in his inheritance. What does it say in Romans? We become co-heirs with Jesus of the inheritance in heaven because he's our Abba, he's our Father. We become co-heirs with Christ. What we don't like reading is the next verse that says that if we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. Are you ready to share in his suffering? What does that mean? That means the laying down of your life. Are you willing to share in his suffering? Are you willing to have your mind renewed, transformed? Are you willing to live a life that doesn't match this world, that morally walks the other direction from this world? It could be full of heartache and pain. You might have to leave your fishing boat. You might need to abandon it to follow him. Are you willing to follow? Because if you're willing to live the life that Jesus has called you to, you'll share in his glory. But you have to be willing to share in the suffering. Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is a parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. He said two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed like this. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I thank you that I'm not like the robbers. I thank you that I'm not like the evildoers, that I'm not like the adulterers. Thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. You see, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and this is what he said. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. If you want to be a part of what this church family is about and what this church family is going to try to accomplish in this world, you and I need to ask ourselves a very sobering question. Are we trying to live and create a culture and a family where we welcome in participants or welcome in consumers? Are we welcoming in people who are going to pick up their cross every day and die 
Or are we welcoming in spectators? Are we going to try to preach sermons that are exciting and attractive and fun? That people come and they listen and they go, oh, I love this. I love this so much. Are we trying to preach sermons that when people come in and they don't know Jesus yet and they get hit by the gospel and they leave thinking, I don't know if I want this guy. He's going to cost me absolutely everything. I think I need to die to myself. Like it's this, this mindset that if we are going to be the kind of people that reach the lost and the broken, we ourselves are going to have to examine ourselves and see who are we. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I have. And I'm sure glad I'm not that sinful. And here's someone off to the side hitting their own chest so ashamed of what's going on inside of their heart. I am so broken. And Jesus says, one of those is worshiping God. One of those went home justified. One of those is not lukewarm. One of those is not going to be spit out of his mouth. And if we're going to create a church family that is just docile, where people aren't willing to humble themselves and repent of sin and admit before God, you are holy and I am not, and I need you. I can't do any of this apart from you. I'm hopeless without you. Not allowing Satan to keep you in shame and brokenness. That's a constant state of not feeling God's love. But it's a humble reflection on the fact that you will always come before God, the broken one, and he will always be the perfect healer. He will always be the holy one. And you will always be the one who is desperate for his holiness. Because it should change everything. If we're truly going to be the ones who humble ourselves, it should change the way that we do church. It should change the way we build budgets. It should change the ministries that we run. It should change what a worship service looks like. It's time to think about that. Because boy, I'd rather have 50 people in this room who repent. 50 people who pray, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. Then 500 that sing songs that don't care. Spit that church out of my mouth. I don't want to be a part of it. And just saying, we choose. We're a family. We choose what kind of family we're going to be. Are we going to bow our heads and repent or not? <laughs> and it starts right here. It doesn't start with you. It starts right here. Me, my heart, then you, your heart. Because if I'm not willing to, how dare I tell you that you need to? Father in heaven, holy is your name. Father, I pray that your kingdom would come down on this earth, that your will would be done, Lord Jesus, in our church.
and in our families and in our hearts, just like your will is always being done in heaven. Father, Father, I pray that you just take care of our family. You would provide for our family day by day. Just dependent on you day by day by day. Father, would you please forgive me of my sin. As I repent and I bear it before you, I struggle, Lord Jesus. I struggle, Lord Jesus. I struggle with pride and I struggle with bitterness. I struggle with anger. Lord Jesus, I struggle with a judgmental spirit. I struggle. I repent of these things, Lord, and ask that you'd forgive me. Father, help me to forgive other people. Help me to forgive the ones who are the hardest to forgive that I've struggled with that I thought it was justified to hold on to it, and I did. Help me to forgive them, Lord, and not carry anger with me any longer. Father, lead me, Lord Jesus. Lead me, Holy Spirit, away from the temptation and the attacks of Satan. Lord, would you deliver me from him? the lies that he speaks to me, the lies that he speaks to my family, the traps that he lays for us and tries to draw us into, the footholds that he has in our lives, the things that we hold that are sacred, the idols that we're worshiping that need to be laid down, would you show us, God, what they are and lead us not into those temptations any longer? Father in heaven, Father, I want to know you. I want to be a part of a church family that repents of their sin and knows you and then lives obediently to your word regardless of the sacrifice. And I want us to choose this day, Father, to do that together. To mark this day. To say from now on, me and my house, my family, we serve the Lord, we repent, we commit to this, we want to know him. We're not going to live this lukewarm life any, any longer. And then, Father, equip us by your Holy Spirit to live out the commitment that we're making. For this not to be just talk, to just be words that come out of our mouths, that, Father, we commit to you. But equip us by your Holy Spirit to be able to break through the different waves of suffering that we're going to have to go through to be obedient to you but that you are worth more to us than our families and you are worth more to us, Lord Jesus, than our hobbies and you're worth more to us than our reputations and God, you're worth more to me than my job and you're worth more to me than my riches and my house. Oh, my vehicle, Lord Jesus, my savings account, you're worth more to me than that. I don't want to ever worship those things again or put them first, ever again. I'm done with it. Father, would this be the cry of our hearts as one united family? 
thank you that you love us enough to speak discipline to us. Thank you that you love us enough to welcome us home. Even in our filthy and sinful state, you see us from a long way off and you come running to receive us home with a robe and with a ring. And you throw a feast for us when we come home. Oh, you are so good. Be the master and the Lord of this church, Lord Jesus, forever. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.